From the nation's capital, this is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Today's topic, ladies and gentlemen, is reforming federal corrections, focusing on the Charles Colson Task Force on Federal Corrections. And today's guest is John Wetzel, member of the Task Force on Federal Corrections and, probably more importantly, Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. He's at www.cor.pa.gov. Secretary Wetzel, welcome to D.C. Public Safety. Thank you so much for having me. All right, John, this is an enormous task force. You all spent a year taking a look at the federal correctional system and making recommendations. So I'm going to read briefly and ask you a series of questions. The Charles Colson Task Force on Federal Corrections issued a set of bold recommendations to reform the federal justice system, enhance public safety, and save the government billions of dollars. A Blue Ribbon panel released the findings of its year-long investigation into the nation's overcrowded and costly federal prisons. These reforms are projected to reduce the federal population, the federal uh, correctional prison population by 60,000 people in the coming years and save more than $5 billion. Uh, So the first question, John, is overall the task force envisions of the federal criminal justice system as an integrated network with agencies and decision makers working together more effectively. What the heck does all that mean? It means that um, nobody's happy with currently how we deliver uh, corrections at, at the federal level. And it really starts with good decision-making on the front end, specifically how we decide who needs to go to federal prison and who doesn't. And the lessons we learned, and, and the task force was uh, developed and really grew out of successes that states have had with going through the same process, where you look at data, you look at what your population drivers are, and then in a collaborative man- manner, discuss policy modifications that will both reduce uh, population, and, and generally in any system, the prisons are the most expensive aspect of it, and more importantly, improve outcomes. And that sounds counterintuitive, right? Now, how can you lock less people up and have lower crime? But the reality is that's, that's been the experience of the state's and that's really indicative of uh, a country that has overused this response to crime of incarceration, absent a focus on outcomes, with the outcome being uh, the individual coming out of the system with a lower risk of committing a new crime. So that's really the, the backdrop. So focus the, on outcomes, focus on reducing crime. What's the bottom line in all of this? A inept federal criminal justice system, uh, a, criminal, a federal criminal justice system that does not work well, a federal criminal justice system that costs too much money, a federal criminal justice system that does not uh, provide the results people are looking for, or all that? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you nailed it. Um, I, I really think... It, in the context of so you saw a big shift to the use of incarceration obviously you know we war on drugs mandatory minimums those kinds of things really drew really um led to a significant increase in the population and i would describe it like this the no, the infrastructure to to run a prison system that we expect i mean when, we, when you talk about a correction system right uh Implicit in that is that um, there's an environment inside that for individuals, at least for individuals motivated to do so, have the opportunity to correct themselves, meaning address the root cause of the crime, so when they get out, they're less likely to commit a crime. 
the population grew so much that the infrastructure in the Bureau of Prisons um, did not keep up. And, and frankly, it would be highly unlikely that you see that stark a growth that, that infrastructure ever keeps up. So you can't build your what, – what states have learned and what the feds – what's very clear in the federal system also, you can't build your way out of – um, out of our historic approach to corrections. Rather, you need to look at population drivers and look at data, and specifically data around approaches that uh, yield outcomes, people less likely to commit a crime. Now, one of the other things, and, and one of the reasons why I think so many people are at the table for this, is because not only has the the footprint of the system grown, but the cost has grown exponentially. So if you look at, at Department of Justice, under which uh, Bureau of Prisons comes, if you look at it as a pie chart, a bigger and bigger piece of that pie is the Bureau of Prisons. And what that does is that takes money from everywhere else. It takes money from enforcement. And in, this, in the context of the days we're living in today, you can honestly and with a straight face make the argument that the more money that's spent on BOP, the less that's spent on folks who are keeping us safe, for, even for things like terrorism. So, um, so there's certainly a, a fiscal imperative. But I think beyond that, and I think why times are very different in America right now, is there's a growing sense from the citizenry of a moral imperative to understand the implications of incarceration not just on the people who are incarcerated, but on their families and the communities. And um, so I think in the context of the Ferguson's where, and, and other events around policing, you've seen uh, a big focus on policing. And a lot of that is, is saying, yes, we need you to protect, but we also need you to be a partner with the community. I don't think – I think this approach is very similar to that philosophically in that, yes, We've overused incarceration, but now we, we expect a couple things. One, we expect the, our federal prisons to do what we want it to do, which is create an environment inside where people can, um, people's lives can be restored. I mean, the title of this, uh, uh, we entitled this study, Transforming Prisons, Restoring Lives, because that's the path that we think has to happen. We think that it's a transform prisons from places that just keep people in. And, and uh, don't take this any other way to understand. There are some people who need to be locked up for a long time and some forever, okay? And, and that's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about folks who, if we, we provide the right intervention and the right environment inside prisons, can get out and be successful citizens. We're all invested in that. Um, so, so that's really, I think, in essence, uh, what – what we see as the possibilities uh, where the federal system can, can be a, an exemplar uh, for the country and, and, frankly, be a better benefit for our hard-earned tax dollars that we're spending on it. But you know, in my 14 years with the Maryland Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services, your counterpart right below you there in the state of Pennsylvania, there was a point where the federal correctional system was looked upon as almost a model. Now, going back 10, 20 years or more uh, for me, but uh, is, is the bottom line here that we federalized so many crimes and we sent uh, too many people to the federal 
federal correctional system? Is it, I mean, is it the, is it the system's issue, or I don't want to use the word fault, um, but is this more driven by, by just sending thousands upon thousands of additional inmates to the federal prison system? Yeah, I mean, I think I think like everything. I mean, I know um, people often want the silver bullet, like aha, it was this, it, aha, it was that. You simply had a system that grew beyond its capacity to to uh, grow equally from an infrastructure standpoint. So we could certainly uh, assign blame a bunch of different places, but I think the reality in in corrections and and the increase in corrections to the era we're in now, we all own it. We, we all own it from, as a voter, from putting uh, people in office who would, were doing what, what we wanted them to do, which was uh, make it safer. The problem is we took this approach and got more punitive without tying measurements to it and without making sure that that approach was truly doing what we intended to do, which is reduce crime. Um, and in some cases, especially with lower-risk offenders, we know that, that um, they actually come out worse. So... Um, and then so I think the, say, the lesson oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. does the lesson apply not only to the federal criminal justice system but every state criminal justice system out there? What you're describing is is similar to what every state in the country has been saying that at one time we worked fine. You throw in three, four, five times the amount of people, and we suddenly don't work fine. Yeah, I, listen, the bureau is not an outlier when it comes to significant growth over the past couple decades. And, and not a corresponding growth in infrastructure. Um, now, I think that the states over the past several years have really uh, assumed a leadership role in, in reforming on a bunch of levels. And to the point where last year we had 30 states that actually uh, experienced reductions in their prison population, as well as the, the Bureau uh, over the past, I believe, two years finally experiencing some reduction in population. I think the the key though, and, and I'm going to keep bringing it back to outcomes, I think the key is when Pew Foundation end of 2014 put out a study where they showed that the states with the biggest prison population drop also experienced the biggest reduction in crime rate. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't imply causation, but at the very least it says that we can use this response to crime of incarceration less, and I would argue with more precision and not have a crime wave and not trigger a crime wave. So I think another way that, that your listeners could conceptualize, um, conceptualize what, we, what we were really seeking to achieve with this report is, is give the federal system a pathway to use decision, use the system, in this case the Bureau of Prisons, with more precision by making better decisions at the front end. Well, you're absolutely right in terms of the state experience because states throughout the country are going to Pew, they're going to the Urban Institute, they're going to the Department of Justice, or they're going to the National Council on, on State Governments, and and utilizing the tools there, and Pew really has taken the lead on this as far as I'm concerned, but um, using the tools and, and getting the technical support from DOJ and Pew and others and making significant changes in their criminal justice system, but the federal system evidently did not. So this seems to be just a continuation of a conversation where 30, that 30 states are having, now the federal government is having. Am I in the ballpark? Yes, you are. But I, I think the one thing that I would, um, that I challenge you on a little bit is that this, this national, uh, 
this national work, um, partially funded by P Foundation, as you accurately point out, and, and Department of Justice, was actually started with a federal grant. So it was a federal investment in states. And I would argue one of the smartest uh, criminal justice investments that we've seen in that, uh, it literally states parlayed a, a relatively small investment of federal dollars into huge savings. So Pennsylvania, uh, I, I inherited a system in 2011 that was growing by 1,500 inmates a year, mm -hmm. right? So that's a prison every year and a half. In essence. Yes. And that was 24 years straight. And I say 24 years because it was both Republican and Democrat. So uh, no one cornered the market on screwing up criminal justice. The <laughs> both sides uh, were equally complicit. So we went through the Justice Reinvestment Initiative. Through that initiative, we were able to, one, stop, not build a new prison at a savings of $200, uh, $200 million, the upfront savings, not, not to mention the $70 million a year it would cost to operate it, and close two others. So what you look at a, a federal investment in Pennsylvania through Justice Reinvestment of, I'm going to ballpark a half a million dollars mm -hmm. that was parlayed into, uh, to date, a savings of, a conservative savings of $280 million. So that's smart federal investment. I think what we're trying to do is say, okay, you've made this investment. You took a leap of faith with the states. The states have, have really parlayed your smart investment in smarter on crime, uh, smarter response to crime, and showed you that not only can you reduce uh, costs and reduce the spend, but reduce crime, and then reinvest some of that money in the front end of the system. Um, so now learn from the lesson that you invested in and bought and apply this to your federal system. That's not exactly um, identical, but, but similar enough that there's some lessons from the states that we can apply at the federal level and anticipate the same benefits. John, what I do want to do is expand this right before the break. I'm reading from the report. Again, the report uh, from the report, prosecutors would be more selective in the cases that they pursue. Judges would be better equipped with a broader set, set of sentencing um, options. The Bureau of Prisons would have better tools to incentivize those incarcerated and improve their outcomes and reentry would occur seamless, seamlessly from the Bureau of Prisons to community supervision agencies. So we're not just talking about the Bureau of Prisons, as you well know, but I just want to be sure that the audience knows that what we're talking about in terms of the task force is the entire federal criminal justice system. Yeah, and I think to the extent uh, systems are, are, first of all, if you, any system, forget it, talk education, talk human services, talk any system at all, systems are better to the extent that, one, they individualize decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. So we make the best decision for that indi individual at that moment in time. Mandatory minimums eliminate that. Um, and two, that the system communicates with each other, and when people hit different levels of the system, that, uh, that transfer is done in a manner that communicates a consistent vision, uh, consistent rules, and, and just simply communicates. And I think if you look from a macro level at what, what um, led to this significant increase in incarceration, to me, it's really simple. We took discretion away from judges and gave it to prosecutors. So uh, the corollary also has to be true, right? So if we want to um, kind of reduce the footprint, a piece of that needs to be um, putting more discretion back in the hands of judges who are the independent arbiter um, who, whose focus is on justice and doing the right thing by victims and doing the right thing by the community and um, not 
coming from one side or another of this of our um, adversarial system. Ladies and gentlemen, the topic today is reforming federal corrections, focusing on the Charles Colson Task Force on Federal Corrections. Our guest today is John Wetzel, E. Wetzel, a member of the Task Force on Federal Corrections and Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, www.cor.pa.gov. John, the point that I wanted to make is, and trying to, to set the stage for questions in the second half, is that it is you know, the, the massive numbers of inmates coming into the state and federal systems, although in this case we're talking about the federal system, and it's the entire federal correctional and court system, so it's just, just not the Bureau of Prisons. Um, so if I'm correct in those two prepositions, let me get on to, to other questions. Uh, so the idea, the top recommendations of the task force, reserve prison beds for those convicted of the most serious crimes, and I think you've hit upon that. Uh, that, was, that was recommendation number one. So the, we seem to be saying that we're putting more people or putting the wrong people in prison? Yeah, putting too many people. We're using prison as a response for uh, crime at too high of a rate, uh, not making individual decisions and not understanding that when we put low-risk people in prison, they come out worse. Mm -hmm. So for the Billions of dollars we're investing in this system. We're actually there's actually a group who we're making more likely to commit another crime. That makes absolutely no sense on from the right, uh, from a fiscal conservative when you talk about good old return on investment, or from a, a humanistic standpoint that we we are. Um, Putting someone on a path to commit crime makes absolutely no sense. The second recommendation, promote a culture of rehabilitation in prison. Uh, for Just for a second, the thing that frustrates me about this recommendation is that those of us who have been in mainstream corrections, me when I was with the Maryland Department of Public Safety, you up in Pennsylvania, is that we all talk about rehabilitation as part of the heart and soul of the correctional system, yet we only have money to do it for a small percentage of inmates. Uh, when you and I were doing a television show on this topic a little while ago, you said that Pennsylvania seemed to be much better structured than the state of Maryland, at least when I was there. But I'm still looking at data saying that the bulk of uh, inmates throughout the United States, wherever they happen to be, they don't get drug treatment, they don't get mental health treatment, they don't get vocational training. Uh, so part of this, promoting a culture of rehabilitation in prisons means that the states and the federal government need to pony up and provide the money. Yeah, I, I, you can't have a recommendation with that without acknowledging quite simply that um, we really need to look at what the purpose of prison is, okay? And if the purpose of prison is, is to truly and, – and keep in mind that when we talk about prison, oftentimes we forget that 90 or 95 percent of everybody comes in our front door is going to leave our back door, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's an important piece of it. But the reality is it goes back to me to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs says that the, until your lower level, basic level needs are met, you can't focus on the higher levels. And the lower level is just like food and drink and shelter and companionship and all that stuff. So if you put that in a, in a correctional environment, which you're very familiar as, as, as have I, this is my... 27th year in the field. Only wow. job I've ever had is working in corrections. Wow. Starting as an you, officer. you came up, yeah. You came up from uh, from being a correctional officer. That's very yep, impressive. At, the, at a county jail. Yep. Started as an officer at county jail and and kind of learned the system inside and out. And I'm very proud about corrections and and being in this field. By the same token, I feel a responsibility that we if we can't 
corrections can't point the finger anywhere else. But with that being said, when the system grows so fast and resources become so scarce that it cuts into our ability to, to deliver safe and secure prisons, when staff assaults are going up, when inmate-on-inmate assaults are going up, when contraband is going up, when the basics of corrections, and you and I both know the basics of corrections has forever has been safety and security, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's the basis of it. And what I'm telling you is that the significant growth in the federal system has led to the federal prisons being less safe and less secure. So that no one who knows anything about this can uh, legitimately expect a system where staff are going in trying to make sure they get home safe and their, their coworkers get home safe and the inmates uh, get through the day safe. To take that and then think that we're going to be focusing on outcomes and reentry and all that stuff. So um, the, the Bureau needs help. Part of that help and part of the way that we can make our dollars stretch more and be able to, to really relook at our infrastructure and relook and, and kind of recalibrate how we do corrections on the federal level is to significantly reduce the population and then capture some of the savings and reinvest it to get back to a place where we're preparing individuals to be successful human beings. And, and also implicit in, in this entire discussion, and, and I just need to, to say this specifically, is the assumption that, that a human being, their humanity is not diminished by being incarcerated. So I, I would argue that the conditions under which we incarcerate people say a heck of a lot more about us than it does the people who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we have a responsibility to respect their humanity, and if that's the case, then the responsibility to set them up to be successful down the road. And g- given the, the Bureau's current uh, level of crowding, unrealistic. It's unrealistic to expect that today. Uh, you know, you take a look at any European system, it is focused principally upon providing programs so they won't come back to the criminal justice system. Uh, and I guess when I talk to people and talking to people uh, before doing this program, uh, their sense of frustration is, Leonard, we've been talking about rehabilitation, uh, reentry for the last 30 years. Nobody's giving us the money, and we're tired of the discussion. Put money on the table. If you're not willing to put money on the table, we're not doing reentry entry. We're not doing rehabilitation. Um, so I was, I was channeling their frustration. Yeah. And, and certainly as a, a practitioner, um, we, we all have a level of frustration. I, I would push back a little bit and say, it's our job. I think that one, one of the things that, that gives me such pride in corrections is we're unlike any other entity in the criminal justice realm in that we have no place to drop anybody off. Mm-hmm. We are the place where it's like uh, those old Motel 6 commercials. We'll leave a light on for you. Mm-hmm. We're always open. We're always, um, we always take whatever we get. We don't choose who we get. Um, but we also always uh, – you know, have pride in getting it done. And, you know, as working in corrections, you know, some of the best days in corrections started as some of the worst days. Mm-hmm. And when there's an issue or an incident or a crisis, that ends up being corrections at its best. I, and I, so I would say I feel the frustration. With that being said, we have responsibility as citizens of America, and in my case in Pennsylvania, 
to try to get it done anyhow. I think most of the people, the vast majority of people in corrections are wonderful people in terms of doing what it is that they do. Uh, all you have to do is spend any time in a prison for any amount of time, and you can you kn- knowing better than anybody uh, how difficult the job is and how you've got to be on top of your game every single day. Um, so let's get through through some of the other recommendations. So the bottom line, again, is, is all of this is to improve the way we do it, coordinate uh, the way that we do it, make sure that everybody in the federal system is marching to uh, the same drum, uh, looking for efficiencies in the system, looking for uh, eventually cost reductions um, uh, within the system. And part of that is, quote, unquote, incentivizing inmates' participation in program. What are we talking about with that? Yeah, in that, so right now there's one program, uh, the drug and alcohol program. I believe it's called RDAP, but I could be off base on that. Uh, I have so many acronyms in my own system, sometimes they scramble in my head. They all run together. Um, but there's one drug and alcohol program that that individuals who are incarcerated are incentivized to participate in. In other words, if you participate in this program, you can get time off your sentence. Mm-hmm. That That's a pretty standard approach in many systems that incentivize all programs mm-hmm. or all evidence-based programs. Maybe it's all programs uh, delivered by the um, – delivered by staff and not incentivized volunteer programs. But the notion that incentives don't, uh, the incentives get more people to participate in these programs. And the key is why it makes sense to incentivize programs is because we know that evidence-based programs reduce risk. So we should incentivize that. If someone's less likely, if their risk reduces as a byproduct of completing someone, or, or uh, as a byproduct of completing something, we should incentivize that. We should reduce, just from a practical standpoint, then reduce the amount of time. Because, again, if, if we have a, a perfect system, which none of us have, even, even some of the European countries that a lot of people point to, no one has a perfect system. But if we had a system, if, if the purpose of our system is truly to correct, and it would look a lot like this, we'd identify what the risk is for the individual, we'd put them on a path to reduce that risk. And when, they, when their risk was reduced to a point where uh, they were safe to go back to the community, that's what we'd do. So I think incentivizing program is just kind of a microcosm of that notion of what our system what I described is what our system is supposed to be, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that's not – I didn't just describe nuclear – No, 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 you're right. Splitting an atom here. You're, that's, you're I mean, correct. You're correct. It's what it should be. So the incentives should be consistent with, with what we want to accomplish. And the whole idea is to take those same sort of incentive using evidence-based practices when they're released in terms of what my agency does, the court services and offender supervision agency. And as far as I'm personally concerned, uh, we're the best parole and probation agency in the country. But um, whether it's federal uh, probation um, or it's whether it's us or whether it's state agencies, they need to use the same evidence-based, risk-based analysis when they supervise them in the community. So again, it's just not the Bureau of Prisons. It's the entire flow from BOP to the community. Yes, and I would, I would, I would actually add that one of the things that I didn't know much about was the federal uh, probation system, mm-hmm. and and it's truly one of the strengths of the uh, of the federal kind of corrections continuum. Uh, we met some remarkable professionals, creative. Um, committed to, to focus on outcomes and, and focus on, on setting people up. And, and from that group in particular, we got a lot of frustration from some of the bureaucracy that gets in the way of doing the job, from uh, certainly resources. Um, I'm, I'm sure 
that's a system where it costs a heck of a lot less than, than having somebody in a, um, in a federal prison. Um, at, but also from a communication standpoint and not getting information on individuals on, on the Bureau using one uh, classification tool that they um, use as a proxy for risk to the federal probation using a kind of true risk needs assessment and, and those uh, two entities not being on the same page. And when you think, if you, if you look at recidivism, which is the rate at which people return, what we know about recidivism is that um, anybody, 50% of everybody's gonna recidivate, recidivates in the first year. So that suggests to me that every day we can keep an individual um, connected and in the community, we're one day closer to having a successful individual. All right, we're and, close to a minute and left. And so when the system puts barriers in that by, by poor communication and those kinds of things, um, we actually increase the likelihood that someone will recidivate. That's inexcusable. John, we have about 45 seconds left. Um, what, are your, what are your key takeaways from your year uh, being on the Charles Colson Task Force on Federal Corrections? Yeah, we we uh, we all swung the pendulum too far towards incarceration, and we did that by using anecdotes and um, and mottos like "tough on crime." We have an opportunity where the the financial incentives, the moral imperatives, are lining up. The right and left are lining up. We have a really op- a great opportunity to get this right. To get it right, we have to set individuals up for success, um, and we have to do that because. They have their humanity, and we have to act like that. And the bottom line is, is that if we do it, we reduce the burden on the federal prison system, we reduce the tax-paid burden, and we provide more money to the other aspects of the federal criminal justice system to do a better job in law enforcement and anti-terrorism. And we improve our communities by having uh, citizens return and, and get reintegrated in their life, and these citizens with children and families and we have an opportunity to make a generational impact here, and I hope we have the guts to do it. Our guest today, John Wetzel, a member of the Task Force on Federal Corrections and Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day. 